Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 1,827. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are the inerrant words of God. May they produce in you the mind of Christ. Before the advancement of modern warfare, the role of a general looked quite different. Today, these men, they command from a distance, giving instruction through satellite communication. In contrast, the generals of antiquity led the charge in battle. For instance, it is said that Alexander the Great would take his spot at the front right, which was the most dangerous position to lead from. In doing so, he was leading by example, giving courage to his troops. In many ways, the apostle Paul did the same thing. For as he sat in chains for Christ, Many brothers in the Lord were encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Paul led by example. And as we'll see from our text today, Christ does so as well. In A.W. Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy, he gives us a glimpse of 20 different characteristics of God. God is triune, meaning that he is one God, yet he is simultaneously three persons. God is self-existent. He was not created. God is self-sufficient. His existence does not depend on any other being or thing. God is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. God is infinite. He cannot be measured. God is immutable. He does not change. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is wise. Good judgment epitomizes his actions. God is omnipotent. He has limitless power. God is transcendent. He is above and beyond his creation. God is omnipresent. He is present everywhere in his creation. 
God is faithful. He is true to his promises. God is good. Morality is determined by who God is. God is just. He punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. God is merciful. He has compassion towards those who have rebelled against him. God is gracious. He grants favor where none is necessary. God is loving. He puts others ahead of himself. God is holy. He is separate from his creation, both morally and in his being. God is sovereign. He is in control, orchestrating all things for his purposes. God is incomprehensible. He cannot fully be understood by the minds of his creatures. And I'd like to add one more category of my own. God is beautiful. The most pleasing thing to behold is him. All these characteristics can be summed up in one amazing category. God is glorious. The glory of God is demonstrated in each of these qualities. And each of these qualities can be seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus, the most glorious being there is. Our passage today is what is known as the Carmen Christi. It is one that theologians drool over, for it covers a theological topic known as the two natures of Christ. Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Now, while it is important for us to discuss Christ's two natures, and it must be expounded upon to fully understand this text, it is essential that it also be tied into the purpose of Paul's inclusion in this letter. Namely, because Christ made himself nothing, we as Christians are both called and empowered to do likewise. Let's review. If you recall, Paul was exhorting the Philippian church to stand as one man contending for the faith of the gospel. Yet this church faced opposition. If they were to remain steadfast, then they must have unity with one another. And if they were to be unified, then it was necessary that they act in humility, considering others better than themselves. Paul now exhorts the church in Philippi to look to Christ, to see both the magnificence of Jesus and how far he lowered himself for their sake. And that through such an example, they'd be motivated to do likewise. Not because they felt guilty, but rather because they would have a fuller understanding of how much Christ loved them. That they could do nothing else but reciprocate such love because Christ had empowered them to do so. With this in mind, let's dive into the text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, I prefer the ESV's translation here a little bit better, for it follows the Greek a little bit closer. It reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The difference here may seem slight, but it communicates something significant. In the first translation, that is the NIV, it is a call for us to follow Christ's example, which for the most part is a good thing to do. Yet the ESV communicates to us that the mind or this attitude of humility has been granted to us by Christ himself. It is his gift to his church. This empowering comes to us not only by his example, but also by his imparting to us his Holy Spirit. So yes, Christians are to follow Christ's example, but the ability to do so comes through Christ's work in, in the life of each individual. This is Paul's charge to the Philippian church, and it is God's charge to you as well. Now verses 6 through 11, they are, they are either an early church hymn or some type of catechism that was employed by the apostles. Whether Paul wrote these words himself or whether he is using another believer's work to make his point, it matters not. The reason Paul chose to use it was because it most likely was something that these Philippian believers were familiar with. It would be like if I were trying to explain to you God's grace, and in doing so, I referenced the song Amazing Grace. It is a recognizable tune in which the meaning will sink in right away. This is Paul's usage of these poetic words. It is something that these Christians would have known and would have understood immediately. Now these verses can be broken up into two sections. Verses 6 through 8, speaking of Christ humbling himself. And in contrast, verses 9 through 11, speaking of God exalting Christ. Let's begin by looking at verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, while Paul didn't intend this letter to be an excursion on the nature of Christ, his desire to set Christ up as an example demands that we look closely at it. All of those categories that I read to you from A.W. Tozer's book that talk about God's attributes, these are consistent with Christ's divine nature. Jesus is infinite. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus is gracious. He is holy and loving. As a son of God, Jesus cannot be less than fully God. He is equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All of this is according to his divine nature. The apostle John makes this perfectly clear in his gospel. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And again, in chapter 17, verse 5, John tells us this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. The glory of the Son is the same glory of the Father. Though the Son submits to the Father, he is not inferior to the Father. We can understand this, for we see this same dynamic in our own relationships. Every human is equal in their being, despite their position in life. For example, children are to submit to their parents. Yet a daughter is not inferior to her mother or her father. Her life has the same value. Jesus and the Father, they are equal, even though the Son submits to the Father. Yet Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What does this mean? Did Jesus step out of his divine nature when he became a man? Did he leave his God attributes behind him? This is what some throughout history have taught. Yet the creeds have condemned such ideas, declaring it to be heretical. You see, we are dealing with a theological issue of first-level importance. To get this wrong is to believe in a false God. So when the Bible says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, it does not mean that Jesus lost his divinity at the Incarnation. No, grasping implies that something is attainable. It is within reach. Equality with God was right there at Jesus' disposal. However, Jesus did not feel the need to cling on to the privilege and honor that was rightfully his as God's son. In other words, Jesus was, is, and always will be fully God. Yet during his earthly years, he veiled his glory, not making use of his divine attributes. Verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, here we see the great example of humility. Jesus did not rid himself of his divine nature, but rather put on humanity. Christ emptied himself and became a man. He made himself nothing. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying Jesus' divine nature and his human nature are in one individual. To phrase it another way, in one person, in Jesus, subsists two natures. Jesus is 100% God, and he is 100% man. 
Yet these two natures are distinct. So the question arises, how can Jesus make himself nothing and still be fully God? The answer to this is that Jesus voluntarily divested himself of certain rights as the Son of God. He restricted himself to a human body with all of its limitations. He gave up his high position when he took upon human flesh and he veiled his glory from people. Finally, he only exercised his divine attributes at the will of the Father. He did nothing of his own initiative. To put this in simpler terms, Jesus added humanity to his nature as he continued to be God. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. As a man, he was susceptible to the things all humans are susceptible to. He grew hungry and tired. He had the same hurts and pains that we experience. He caught colds. He got the flu. If he fell down, he would scrape his knee and bleed. This is why in Luke 2.52, we learn this about Christ. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus' body grew and his brain developed, just like any child's. From his appearance, there was nothing special about him. We saw this in our first scripture reading, in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus did not walk around with a halo over his head. Yet this was God's plan from the beginning, to make himself nothing, to take on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Finally, Jesus took the ultimate form of humiliation, death. In Genesis 3, death is a curse that falls upon Adam when he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is for sinners. So you might ask, how can Jesus, a sinless man, die? Again, this is Christ humbling himself. Not only did he put on humanity, veiling his divine nature, but he submitted himself to death, a penalty he did not deserve. 
And this was his own choice. Look at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Here we see that Jesus does this of his own free will as he submits to the Father. There was no power on this earth that could take his life. Yet he laid it down for you in order that you might live. And this wasn't just any death, but the most humiliating death that the world could contrive of during that time. Crucifixion. Being nailed to a cross. It was not the death penalty for Roman citizens. Theirs was a quicker and kinder death. Decapitation. Citizens were treated with more dignity. These Philippian believers, they understood this. They knew that the cross was reserved for those of a lower status. Crucifixion was intended to add humiliation and shame to the punishment. This is why they hung naked for all to see, being put on display near the city gates to make sure everyone had a chance to taunt them. This message that Paul preached, Christ crucified, was foolishness to the Gentiles. But more than that, crucifixion was a cursed death. It was a curse upon a curse. Look at Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. To hang on a tree is to be under God's curse. It is to be cut off from God. This, this is the humility of Jesus. This was the mind of Christ to which these Philippian believers were called to follow. To make themselves nothing, just as their Lord had done. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In contrast to verses 6 through 8, we now see Christ exalted. In response to Jesus' death, the Father vindicated his Son by exalting him to the highest place. After the resurrection, Jesus once again made full use of his divine nature. The veil was lifted and he entered into his glory. You see, 
while the resurrection was a necessity, it was not a sufficient reversal. Jesus just couldn't be the God-man with his divinity continuously veiled. He had to be restored to the right hand of the Father in glory. He must be established upon his throne. More than that, all those attributes of God that we began with, his self-existence, his eternality, his wisdom, his omnipotence, his mercy, his sovereignty, his beauty, all of that is now unveiled. Christ is exalted. Verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, there will come a day when every creature will recognize Jesus for who he truly is. They will bow the knee before him. Those in heaven, the angels, and the departed saints above. Those on earth, all creatures who have life. And those under the earth, the demons and the damned that have returned to the dust. There is nowhere to run. There is no place to hide. There is no escaping from the glory of our Lord. For on that last day, Jesus will reveal himself as he truly is. And everyone will bow the knee and confess. They'll be so overwhelmed by his glory that they will have no other choice. Jesus Christ is Lord. True Roman religion came with the notion that Caesar was a god. To be a proper Roman citizen, it was implicit that when an image of Nero was present, that they would declare, Caesar is Lord. These brothers and sisters in Philippi knew this. Yet their allegiance was to be to Christ, not to Caesar. They were citizens of heaven first. For one day, even Nero will bow his knee and proclaim, Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember, Paul chose this hymn for a reason. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ humbling himself, taking upon the very nature of a slave, being obedient to death. Christ's exaltation, the lifting of the veil. All of this made it possible for these Philippian believers to consider other, others better than themselves. And through Jesus making himself nothing, you too are granted the mind of Christ. Jesus gives to you freely so that you may freely give. Once you know who Jesus is and what he has done for you, 
then you'll be able to proclaim his grace to others. Through his abasement, Jesus calls you to a life of suffering. This is why Paul wrote these words in his letter to the Romans. Romans 8, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. It is because of Christ that you can humble yourself, establishing unity within the church so that you might not fear your enemies, but stand as one man for the faith of the gospel. Jesus made himself nothing so that you would share in his glory. Now he calls you to take the form of a slave in order that your family, your friends, and your neighbors might confess that Jesus Christ is Lord while there is still time. To the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the truth that comes from your word. We ask that you would strengthen our faith in who you are. Help us to recognize your son and how much he humbled himself for our sake. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. Give us the mind of Christ as he made himself nothing to rescue us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to do something slightly different today. Um, because this passage hit on such a theological heavy topic, I thought it would be good for us to recite the Nicene Creed afterwards because it hits on these things. And if I made any error in what I said, it will correct me. So, uh, there should be a little pullout in your bulletin. So let's, let's recite this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and in the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, 
and we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.